Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's the man with no nickname, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? <laughs> it's like a shit version of Clint Eastwood, the man with yeah. no nickname. Yeah, no, I like that, that's fine. I'm fine, thank you. I'm enjoying pretty much all of last week's news stories that we discussed continuing to be news stories this week. Mm, yes, so last week we talked a little bit about Jason Blum's fairly... Uh, wrong-headed uh, attempt to kind of like talk about why his company Blumhouse haven't hired any women to direct their horror movies, even though they made like dozens upon dozens of horror movies. And there are lots of women in Hollywood who want to direct horror movies. And yet somehow they've never hired any of them to make their movies. And then in the kind of weeks since then, film journalists have been trying to follow up on this by talking to female directors and asking them about this saying like, Hey, have you been asked by Jason Blum to work on any projects? And it was announced this week, or, or maybe announced is too strong a word, but someone spoke to the director, Dee Reese, director of Mudbound from last year, Oscar nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, and also the movie Pariah, which is a brilliant movie, one of the best queer movies of the past decade. And they asked her if she had worked with Jason Blumhouse or intended to, and she talked about how she's working on a lesbian horror movie about, you know, women of colour living in kind of like red state America. She didn't give much else in terms of context, but it certainly sounds like a really enticing project. And I just thought it was really interesting that Jason Blum couldn't even pull that when if you wanted to tout your bona fides as someone who wants to work with female directors, like D. Reese would have been a pretty good pull mm-hmm. as opposed to what he did in that interview again with uh, Matt Patches of Polygon of just being like, uh, not being able to name the people that he said he was working with and then asking his assistant to rattle off names of people they've approached. So uh, that was just an interesting kind of follow-up to that particular story, which uh, inadvertently cast Jason Bloom in an even worse light. Mm, yeah, he kind of didn't seem to know what was going on in his own shop, whereas mm. that would be, you know, that's to to kind of a, like appease people who think you don't have enough diversity going on in your yard, pulling out a black lesbian story Mm -hmm. would be perfect. Yeah. He just didn't have it to hand, did he, our Jason? Yeah, so hopefully that movie comes together because it does sound really good and D. Reese is a really fascinating and and very, very talented director who, following Mudbound, has got a lot of projects lined up. So hopefully something will come of that. There are also... I guess the, the the next two stories could probably be lumped under people making the internet very angry <laughs> by mm. talking about their possibly misguided projects. The first of which was it being announced that Lena Dunham is going to adapt the story of a Syrian refugee trying to, a story of survival of, you know, kind of traveling across the Mediterranean to escape from the bloodshed in Syria and trying to get to Europe, which for a number of reasons got a lot of people very angry and i'd say rightly so like lena dunham is i think a talented writer i really liked girls i like tiny furniture i think that she is someone who is a lot kind of more nuanced as a writer as a writer than people are give her credit for Mm -hmm. but 
if there's a major blind spot in everything that she has written, it is her ability to write characters who aren't white. And it seems that having her be hired to write a story like that, that is so tied into a specific cultural experience and a specific experience that that is so far away from her own experience that it would seem to accentuate her her blind spots as a writer. Mm. And it's interesting because she's doing it under the auspices of two famously white, <laughs> like Jewish guys in J.J. Mm. Abrams and Steven Spielberg, but no one's angry yeah. at them because they are essentially doing what Lena Dunham should be doing, which is using her profile and platform to raise up other voices. If mm. Lena Dunham announced, if it was announced that Lena Dunham was like producing a script about a Syrian refugee written by someone better positioned to bring some authenticity to it, shall we say? Mm-hmm. That's the polite way of saying it. Then we w- wouldn't be talking about this, would we? We'd be like, oh, Lena Dunham appears to have learnt what her like weak spots are as a writer and as an artist, and perhaps she's willing to learn. And no, we've not got that, have we? We've got pre- mm. pretty much a... The opposite of that, the thing that I'm not sure why anyone thought would be a good idea. I mean, I did joke that she would cast Scarlett Johansson in the lead, um, <laughs> but that now doesn't seem so silly. Mm. Yeah, it definitely has echoes of the situation from earlier this year with Scarlett Johansson and the movie Rub and Tug, where, you know, she was producing and was going to star in a movie about a trans man. And everyone was like, why can't you just produce this and actually hire a trans actor to play this role as opposed to casting yourself in it and potentially using it as kind of some way of glorifying yourself by living someone else's experience or mm. depicting someone else's experience. And yeah, it does It does have... There's a certain tone-deaf quality to both those stories. And, you know, the Rub and Tug seemed to reach something of a more of a happier conclusion in the Scarlett Johansson said that she was going to step away from it as an actor and then just produce it although there's not really been any further announcements on that so maybe that's her way of politely killing the project mm-hmm. and there's been no similar move so far on this 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 movie that uh, Dunham is writing but you would hope at the very least you know she would take this sort of concern on board and you know uh, uh, you know try and really research and consult with people and to try and get the details right because i think it's very easy and you know we just did it it's very easy to jump on people for trying to write stories that are outside of their experience and i think that you know for writers it is possible for people to tell stories that are from perspectives other than their own but they have to be very good at it and they have to take all of the necessary st- st- uh, stages to actually do that well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the the concern that I think a lot of people would have with Lena Dunham is a lot of her previous work suggests that she's very, very good at telling stories that relate to her own experience and critique her own experience and the experiences of the people that she knows very closely. Like Girls is fairly, I would say fairly excoriating when it comes to her kind of like looking at her own like clique and uh, experiences that she knows. But whenever it kind of goes beyond that, her work tends to lose a lot of that specificity. And that, that I think 
is a major concern is that she just wouldn't be able to bring that level of detail to a story that exists outside of her own worldview. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I watched the documentary Quincy uh, mm. a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Netflix film about Quincy Jones. And it was interesting that a similar kind of thing came up where they were talking about Steven Spielberg directing the color purple mm. and it being, that is something that that debate wouldn't happen now. Like, yeah. it, like Steven Spielberg said, when uh, the color purple came out, I'm not the person to write this. This, mm. this isn't for me. And it was actually Quincy Jones who persuaded him to do it mm. with the idea that someone of Steven Spielberg's profile can tell any story. And I suppose that's true, but that's not true of Lena Dunham. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's not true of now, you know? Yeah. Another kind of example of that would be something like, you know, in the early nineties when I think it was Norman Jewison was meant to direct Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. And for a long time he was going to direct that. And Spike Lee very kind of vocally and very publicly talks about how he was the wrong person to direct that movie and that, you know, it should be directed by a black director. And it ended up being Lee himself who directed it. And he made like a masterpiece of nineties cinema. And I think that speaks to the importance of allowing people to tell their own stories. And while the big story of the last couple of years in terms of people's discussions about representation and diversity and things like that is, it's not just a case of, you know, cast more people of colour in roles. It's a case of, you know, allowing writers who come from different backgrounds to tell their own stories and to offer their own perspectives. And the discussion is not, is, has now moved on from just, oh, we need to tell stories about black people, about Hispanic people, about, you know, people from the Middle East and things like that, or queer people, LGBTQ people. It's about, it's moved on to the next stage, which is, you know, it's very, very good that people in power are are able to, like, raise up people to star in these things. But what's really important is actually giving people from those communities the chance to tell their own stories. And clearly, uh, in this instance, that seems to have been uh, a failure on many sides. Yeah, absolutely. And our second story, very in a, much in a similar vein, is about uh, Rebel Wilson, the fairly popular and very divisive Australian actress who has been whose profile in Hollywood has risen a lot in recent years, primarily thanks to the Pitch Perfect movies, in which she plays the character of Fat Vicky which kind of foregrounds, I think, uh, how Hollywood views her. Mm -hmm. And it certainly ties into this particular story because she is going to be the lead of a romantic comedy. And she then said that she was the first plus-size actress to headline a romantic comedy. And that very swiftly got a very vocal response of people saying, like, well, what about the three or four romantic comedies that Queen Latifah headlined. Uh, you know, like there was a, a a lot of people kind of like chimed up and said, there have been a lot of romantic comedies where, and romances in general, where a, a larger actress has been the lead. Mm -hmm. And and many people have compared this to uh, Sam Smith in his uh, Oscar acceptance speech for the terrible song he wrote for Spectre saying that he was the first gay person to win an Oscar, <laughs> uh, where essentially you are kind of like in a very offhanded way, kind of blithely erasing 
a huge number of people who have done a thing uh, long before you have. And it was a particularly bad look for Rebel Wilson because she seemed to just be erasing a lot of movies focused on larger black actresses who mm. were the subjects of these movies and subjects of desire and romance in those kind of movies. And then she doubled down and was like, when people raise this for trying to quibble and be like, well, I don't know, those actresses aren't plus size. And it's like, wow, you're really just kind of trying to win this on a technicality and a technicality that really doesn't apply. Like, I don't feel like Monique would not consider herself plus size, you know, for example. And, and like a big part of Queen Latifah's personality is that she is a larger, very confident uh, woman. And mm. it definitely feels like Rebel Wilson two times over really stepped in it on this one. Yeah, I kind of had to start to question who was handling her PR or running her Twitter account because mm. to come back with any kind of response that begins with something along the lines of, well, actually, um, yeah. is, you know, never great. Mm-hmm. And then to kind of just say, it kind of ended, she ended up by saying, well, those women weren't technically plus size, so it's a gray area. It's yeah. like so, so stupid. Like it, it would have been so much easier just to say, oh, yeah, shit, of course. Yeah, forgot about them, slip my mind, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Those, oh, they're great in those films, et cetera. And they could have done that quite easily. But I say they, I'm talking about her team because, you know, thing, these things don't exist without someone pulling the strings. But yeah, she mm-hmm. easily could have done that. And then to then start blocking uh, people who have pointed this out in a relatively polite way to her on social media is like on mass as well. Anyone who kind of brought up Moni or uh, Queen Latifah was, was seemed to be instantly blocked by Rebel Wilson for, and I just, you know, you're not endearing people to you when you are making something that leans quite heavily on you being likable. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not a good idea. Yeah, and also a lot of the people who were bringing this up were in turn black women, you know, critics and, you know, film fans. And and it really does look even worse when the people you are blocking bringing this up are disproportionately people of colour mm. <laughs> because it looks... Yeah, it just further accentuates the idea that you don't value their opinions and you don't value the work that has been done by people of that community before. Mm. Uh, You know, you forgot that these movies existed, maybe just as a simple oversight of like thinking, oh, we can't think of any movies starring larger women that where they're, you know, the, the leads in these romances... Therefore, they can't exist, which is an easy oversight to make. It's a silly one because, you know, like film history is so vast and large that most things have been done already. And it's very, very stupid to think that you're the first person to have done something in 2018. But to then have, once people start pointing these things out, instead of just very contritely being, you know what? Yeah, our mistake you know, we 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 said something, you know, without doing the due research. Clearly, these movies do exist. And then just kind of pivoting to saying, like, but the fact that we couldn't think of this demonstrates how rare they are or whatever. Like, mm. there was a graceful way out of this. And instead, they took the least graceful way. And it just became uh, a, a controversy in a way that it absolutely did not need to. 
I wonder if the whole thing's happened because, you know, someone in the marketing department thought there'd be a great thing to lead with and they've printed the posters mm. already. Yeah. You've never seen this before. A plus size actress in a romantic comedy. Here is Rebel Wilson. And yeah, they, you know, they, they didn't keep the receipts or whatever. But, mm. you know, there's really no. I mean, that's a fairly, you know, ridiculous way, reason that I've given there. And it's not going to be that, is it? That's, you know, that's stupid. But like I say, a completely needless, avoidable controversy just seemed to be punching yourself in the face. Mm. It is obviously a big PR thing. Like, how are we going to distinguish this movie from other movies? How are we going to get press? And, you know, they decided, oh, this seems like a way in. And obviously it worked because they did get them press. But past the opening gambit on their part, it really backfired (laughs) and then went out of their control completely from there. Mm. Yeah. Our main topic for this week, and it's also kind of a news story as well, because this does feel like one of the biggest events of the year from a cinephile perspective, is the release of The Other Side of the Wind, which is Orson Welles's long, unfinished, and finally completed final movie, which he shot in the early 1970s, worked on over the course of four or five years, on and off. Much like a lot of the movies he was making at that time, you know, he would film for a few days or a few weeks with various cast and crew when the money ran out he would go off and do other work to kind of raise the funds and kind of put them together and unlike something like his version of Don Quixote which he worked on kind of on and off for 10 or 15 years I think and was basically just something he was doing more or less for fun and there was never any sense that it was a a project that he ever thought would be released The Other Side of the Wind was this movie that he really seemed to be excited about the possibility of and it was for very many years this kind of holy grail of cinephilia alongside you know the lost 40 minutes of the magnificent ambersons this sense that there was this more or less finished awesome wells movie that he just didn't get to edit because he could never get the the money together to edit the whole thing together and to film you know a handful of scenes that he needed to get done and for the last kind of decade or so Peter Bogdanovich who uh, was obviously was a close friend of Orson Welles and a great act- a director in his own right and who acts in the movie and Frank Marshall who was you know at the time was like a young guy first starting off in the film industry who wound up becoming one of the most successful and powerful producers <laughs> in Hollywood they worked you know kind of relentlessly uh, to try and finish the movie in some form and tried to resolve all these legal difficulties that had arisen, tried to get all of the material together and they could never seem to make it work. And then uh, about two years ago, it was announced that Netflix was stepping in to provide the money to finish the project. They were going to invest the millions of dollars that it would require to assemble all of the elements, to transfer them, to you know, clear up the sound that had existed on these kind of like muddy recordings from the late, from the mid seventies to finally assemble something like what Wells would have made. And so the movie debuted at a couple of film festivals. I believe it won an award at Venice because of it being such an achievement that this project has finally made it out into the world. And on Friday it was released by Netflix and you and I have both watched it and 
Uh, so yeah, so we're going to talk about the movie itself, but also the story of the movie because it is really quite fascinating, both as you know text and as kind of meta text. Mm. Yeah, and it answers a question that I always wondered, which was, what would it look like if Orson Welles was making films in the New Hollywood era? Mm. And and now we know, and it's it, it's not really what I expected. Which is by his own admission, he, there's a, there's a kind of a accompanying documentary that was on released on Netflix on the same day called what was it called? They'll they'll love me when I'm dead. Is that right? Yes, directed by uh, Morgan Neville, who also yep. did Twenty Feet from Sodom and Won't You Be My Neighbor. So ah. Netflix have really gone all out on this one, which. Uh, you know, it's commendable in terms of if we're going on the the good place kind of point system. I feel mm-hmm. like this gets them in the medium place. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like this balances out a lot. The, the Richie Rich thing. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, the, by Wells' own admission, in you know, in archive interviews that's done it, that you see in in that documentary, like this is not the film that he's making. It's kind of a film within a film. Neither mm. of them are films that he would ever have made himself. That right. people would associate with his style and it's it was kind of a real thrill for me to see a director who has been so integral in codifying what we think of as film language you know Mm -hmm. he didn't invent anything new but he kind of rewrote the rule book of how you present things and weird to see someone like that who is held in that regard essentially making a really odd experimental film that's mm. really bold. And I'm I'm kind of, as the regular listeners to the show will know, I'm not a cinephile. I had actually never heard of uh, Other Side of the Wind until, I don't know, maybe six months ago when I heard mm. that Netflix were putting it out. I knew that he had unfinished films and I knew that Don Quixote was one, but I'd never heard of this one. So I knew nothing about it and I knew nothing about it until I pressed play on watching the film so I was immediately struck by how how much of a formal head fuck it was. Mm. But then after you kind of, that fades away and you slip into the story and into the ideas that he's exploring um, and some of the really kind of dark personal stuff with him and Bogdanovich that's like super kind of like on the nose. Mm. It's a pretty remarkable film and a remarkable achievement to get it to the point where from my point of view, it seemed fairly seamless. It didn't feel like a film that had been stitched together over years with different casts and crews. It's it's the way it's shot and the way it's put together actually lends itself pretty well to that. Mm. It's quite a kind of assault on the senses at the start. Yeah. And then once it gets into the kind of house party segment, which is, you know, most of the film, it's actually clever filmmaking. If you want to make a film spread out over a long time, you kind of have lots of different people in it in lots of different rooms doing lots of different things. So you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about continuity so much and you can fire some of the actors as well <laughs> um, and replace them with your landlord uh, slash Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was absolutely kind of incredible and it kind of blew me away. And yeah, like I said, some of the some of the, the stuff, uh, the drive-in with... Bogdanovich and 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 John Houston was like you know when you listen to Rumors by Fleetwood Mac mm-hmm. and you th- and yeah. you think how were they recording this this must have been awful to be in the room at the same time <laughs> how does Peter Bogdanovich and John Houston have those lines directed written by 
the person they're about who stood behind a camera <laughs> telling you to say them. Like, it's, ugh. Considering that it's, it's interesting that, like, you know, when their filming started, Peter Bogdanovich hadn't made a film before. And then, yeah. or he, he think he'd made Targets, hadn't he? He hadn't made The Last yeah. Picture Show. And then by the time he was coming back to do filming five years later, you know, he's the core celebre of uh, of Hollywood and, and mm. New Hollywood and, you know, is is uh, being asked by his his lodger <laughs> to, <laughs> to, like, film additional scenes for his student film. It's kind of weird. But like, as, a, as, a, as a film and an experience, it's incredible. But as as a kind of a, a living monument to Wells's artistic vision and just the sheer force of will that he had to do that with mm. no money just by getting... There's, there's stuff I don't know about Orson Wells. I don't know why people wouldn't give him the money. I, don't, I really don't know. Was he, like, a terrible person or did he piss everybody off? Like, why weren't people thinking, oh, this guy made some amazing movies, we'll give him half a million dollars to finish this or whatever? And I don't, never really understood that. Was he very profligate with money or something? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's always been somewhat mystifying. I think a large part of it is that, you know, when he made Citizen Kane, he pissed off William Randolph Hearst and the studios just, like, conspired pretty much to destroy him from, like, the the off you know he'd made a movie which would go on to be considered one of the greatest movies of all time and at the time you know did fairly well and you know won him an oscar and all this sort of stuff but didn't do as well as it should have and had this taint of him supposedly having taken on like one of the most powerful people in the media at the time and i think you know he was so spurned by that and his subsequent experiences trying to work in Hollywood doing things like The Lady of Shanghai or The Stranger which are really good movies Mm. but are really work for hire sort of stuff like I think the I think it's The Lady of Shanghai the the story of how he came to make that was he was like on a phone call with a producer trying to persuade them to let him make a movie and they said well what have you got and he literally saw someone reading the book like nearby and he was like i want to make this <laughs> like and like he hadn't read the book he didn't know what it was about he just saw that someone was reading it and then just kind of like talked his way because he was he was very much kind of like this like maverick almost that like there's such an element of the magician and the carnival barker to the wellsian persona there was real essentially he was just like such a forceful personality that he could convince people to let him do pretty much anything at least in the early days of his career and then I guess he just, like, the movies he made just didn't make money. And in They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, he does say at one point, you know, I guess I need to make a a hit movie. You know, it's getting too late for me not to have. And I think there was just this sense that he he had hardly, hardly any of the movies he'd made had been successful. They tended to get fairly mixed reviews and then were later appreciated. But... By that point, I think there was just this sense that he was this kind of like old weirdo who never managed to finish a project or who had had these like real ramshackle productions like they talk about it in in the documentary about that shot in Othello where one character punches another and then the reaction shot was filmed two years later in an entirely different country because like after they filmed that shot, the, the the financing fell through and he had to go off and I think make Treasure Island to earn the money back. And then, yeah, and it's just... I, I just think there was this... Such a ramshackle quality to the stuff he was doing around that time that people felt that he was this kind of profligate person, this complete... Like, mm. you couldn't really trust him or anything, even though the work that he was doing was often, like, fantastic. Like, his version of The Trial is amazing. 
Chimes at Midnight is like one of the best movies ever made. Certainly one of the best Shakespeare adaptations ever made. And he was like just such a brilliant figure, but it just never, never seemed to happen for him. You know, that's like one of the great tragedies of his, of his career. And they also talk, talk about how strange it was that he didn't really intersect with the new Hollywood, even though they all revered him. Mm. Like he's in, he's in the Mike Nichols's version of Catch-22, where he's very funny. But that was like more or less it, and then that's one of the things that make the other side of the wind so um, fascinating. To give people like a brief synopsis of the plot, which it, it will be very brief because like if you were to say what happens in the movie, it's fairly threadbare. Mm. Um, it's a movie about the last day in the life of a film director played by John Huston, who has made or has shot much of this movie called The Other Side of the Wind, which is very clearly kind of a art film in the vein of an Antonioni or a Bergman-style movie, the things that were very popular in the late 60s when Wells was kind of percolating ideas for this movie. And he is trying to convince, or one of his stooges is trying to convince a film producer who is very clearly meant to be Robert <laughs> Evans. <laughs> so obviously meant to be Robert Evans. It was it uh, was so obviously Robert Evans that I was sitting throughout that scene thinking, is that Robert Evans? Because <laughs> I know that he liked to act, if you could call mm. it acting, but I kind of, I didn't see his name in the credits. And I was yeah. like, I wonder if that's a cameo because they really went for it. Mm. Yeah, at the same time that this whole kind of coterie of his former collaborators and acolytes are all gathering together at his house for his 70th birthday party, for the director's 70th birthday party. And so much of the film, as you said, takes place at this party and kind of the the engine that's driving the movie in a lot of ways is the relationship between the John Huston character, uh, Jake Hannaford, and the Peter Bogdanovich character, who is like Bogdanovich himself, you know, a very successful film director who is like in much in the same way that he, Bogdanovich himself was very much, you know, kind of idealized and idolized Wells and had a very close relationship with him, which also at times was fairly poisonous. Like their dynamic is what kind of uh, defines the movie. And there's kind of like, you know, Bogdanovich shows up with his much younger girlfriend, <laughs> which is another kind of echo of mm. of real life. Because at the time he was dating uh, Sybil Shepherd, who he had started dating after they'd worked together on the last picture show. And then there's this kind of like uh, game of uh, sexual dominance i guess where uh hannaford steals the girl from him and it's, it's it's a very kind of knotty film in the sense that on the one hand you have this incredibly dense story with all of these characters in this house all talking about what cinema kind of is and the work of this fictional director and you have real directors mixed in you know like dennis hopper's in it clearly as they say in the documentary clearly stoned out of his mind uh, Claude Chabrel, the great French New Wave directors in it, Paul Mazursky and Henry Jaglum, who are both kind of close friends of Orson Welles at various points towards the end of his life. Like all of these people are showing up in it as real directors, but it doesn't take much, it doesn't really take much knowledge of Welles's life and his relationships to see the very clear parallels between the Hannaford character and himself, even though in kind of attitude, there's a lot more of 
a Hemingway figure or even Houston himself because like John Houston had that kind of like adventurous swashbuckling swagger to him which you really see coming through in his performances as Hannaford. Mm, yeah, it's interesting that a film by a director about which there are lots of myths mm. is stars a director about whom there are lots of myths <laughs> playing <laughs> a director about whom there are lots of myths. Um, yeah. It kind of folds in on itself very well, and I can't think of a better person to play that role than uh, than John Houston, um, mm. which is weird because the the interesting thing was what I learned from the documentary that, that accompanies this is that you know John Houston and, and Orson Welles were very they're very much on the same page artistically. They kind of understood mm. everything, but the big difference as to why John Houston thrived and Orson Welles floundered and had to you know sleep on Bogdanovich's couch is. <laughs> John Houston would do one for them and one for me. Yeah. You know, he would make the man who would be king in the middle of filming uh, Other Side of the Wind um, and then would make Escape to Victory or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that is how you played the system, whereas Wells, by his very nature, knowingly and, you know, refused to take part in the system. Mm. And that really, that that side of Wells's personality, the 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 true maverick, the person who won't be constrained by anyone, who doesn't want to talk about running out of money and wants to finish the film and, and maintain all the artistic integrity, is pretty much distilled into Houston's character by mm. way of, uh, like you say, Ernest Hemingway. And there's lots and lots of references, including a a very uh, kind of blatant one where he's talking about his left hook being overrated, which I think is a great line about Hemingway. Um, <laughs> but they was, you know, he talked at times about the film being a kind of a deconstruction of that masculine kind of super macho director myth, but it doesn't actually really get much into that beyond a little bit of kind of homoerotic tension between yeah. him and the actor. But that's, you know, it's not really there. And there is, I think there is some of that in the relationship between Bogdanovich and Houston. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly the scene, like you said, the scene at the drive-in where they're watching the last bit of the movie within the movie that's been completed. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like, he has a line where he says something like, uh, did I do bad daddy or something like that? Which is kind of paternal, but also there's like this underlying sexual subtext to it and Mm -hmm. also earlier on there's a conversation where they're talking to the pauline kale analog in the movie where they're talking about like you know men only like men women keep them away from each other so like there are elements of the movie that are discussing that kind of hyper masculine ideal of you know a man's man and the overlap between excessively macho explore a swashbuckler type and homosexuality but like you say it's not it's not really the main focus of the movie it's very much kind of folded in under everything else Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas a lot of the movie also is kind of seems to be wells offering his skepticism about the new hollywood in the form of bogdanovich who in the movie and in real life was like a hugely successful director and Hannaford's character uh, Hannaford discovers during the course of this party that he is his protege is uh, standing to earn like 40 million dollars from some company that he's involved in like they don't go into a massive amount of details but there's this definite sense that you know this is a guy who's struggling to complete his final movie looking at this person who 
you know, tracked him down as um, a writer with the tape recorder as Bogdanovich himself, you know, had kind of like tracked down Orson Welles in order to interview him before he became a director and who since has completely overshadowed him and like has attained a level of success that he could never dream of. Mm. And then at the same time, the Hannaford character being unwilling to ask, you know, his wildly successful disciple to, you know, provide the money that would allow them to finish the movie that's been made. And the, the kind of the, the mix of pride and anger that's wrapped in all of this. And, and in the movie, The Other Side of the Wind as well, like Wells seems to be expressing a real contempt for the work of Antonioni, mm. who in interviews... He also kind of like talked about, um, there's a great interview he gave to Playboy in the late 60s where he talks about Antonioni being the great discoverer of boredom as artistic expression. And you kind of see that in this movie that he shot, which is this gorgeous 35 millimeter color movie about just like a guy kind of following a woman around, mm. <laughs> which doesn't really have anything in the way of a plot, but looks gorgeous and has this like amazing rhythm to it. And it's really interesting because on the one hand, he's being like, well, this kind of movie is like, this isn't the kind of movie that I, like you say, you know, he's he's almost directing it behind a mask. You know, he's kind of stepping outside of himself and making a movie that he himself would never make. But the, he ends up making a movie that does actually look really cool. <laughs> and like the sex scene in the middle of the movie is like this really daringly shot and composed sensual experience. You know, they talk about in the documentary, the idea of the, the movie approximating the feeling of an orgasm. Mm. And it, it does feel so unlike anything Wells had ever done before. And it's really strange. He's like both satirizing what Antonioni does and demonstrating that he can do it better than he could, than Antonio could. Like if he tried, if Wells fully committed to doing an art film like that, he probably would make something really, really interesting. Mm. There's a couple of those scenes in in the film within a film. There's the the sex scene in the the car. Then there mm. is the uh, the bathroom scene. There's like a kind of a weird kind of orgy in the bathroom, yeah. edited in this really kind of kind of rapid fire way. And then mm. there's also the scene in which in the film within a film, the lead actor quits, and uh, you you kind of hear the director of the film within a film. I'm confusing myself now where I am. <laughs> uh, John Huston's character, anyway, is, is you hear his dialogue and you think it's, you know, it's in the, the, the screening room, but then it's actually on the take of talking about him trying to goad the actor into a bit of a performance he's not comfortable with. And then mm. he leaves the set, walks the set, walks off the set. And then you hear him giving instructions to his cameraman to say, follow him, follow him off the set. And then you get this really kind of slightly surreal uh, image of a of a naked guy walking stark bollock naked through an empty <laughs> sound, uh, studio lot, which is a mm-hmm. you know a full abandoned street, which is uh, kind of weird. But yeah, there's a few moments like that where you think, oh shit, if he'd have actually made this film legit, like a European art film, then yeah, he would do it better than most other people. I, I have to say that like a lot of the extremes of Antonioni's stuff is really kind of turns me off. And when mm-hmm. I, I kind of saw Wells lampooning it, I kind of mm-hmm. had a, a little wry smile to myself because I thought mm. uh, this is the worst excesses of the thing that I don't like nailed yeah. so perfectly. And then he 
goes on to do those scenes where you think, well, actually, I would be interested in this kind of stuff if it, you know, felt a little bit more real. Mm. Obviously, Wells didn't edit the whole thing because he had he had edited about forty five minutes of the movie by the time that he passed away, and that was partly because he, you know, like the financing that he tried to get together fell through at various points. The movie was co financed by a company owned in part by the brother-in-law of the Shah of Iran. And so when the Iranian revolution happened in 1979, that company's like financial viability kind of came into question. And that was kind of like the end more or less of the other side of the wind as a project, you know, until Bogdanovich and Marshall revived it in the, the, the mid two thousands. And you can really tell that all of the people who were involved in making the movie and Netflix did do an entirely separate short documentary called a final cut for Orson, which you can watch buried in the trailers section of the other side of the wind because Netflix's UI is so <laughs> good and useful and they are so good at making their extra stuff available to everyone. They, there's this whole kind of like discussion about how the guy who edited the movie or finished editing it, it was a guy called Bob Murawski who lived three doors down from Gary Graver, who was the cinematographer on basically everything Wells did in the last 15 years of his life, and who himself tried to edit The Other Side of the Wind, but, you know, was just so overwhelmed by it that he he was never able to finish it. Murawski um, edited, uh, read every book of Orson Welles, on, on Orson Welles. He studied all of the notes that existed about what he wanted to do with the movie, and he listened to all of the direction that Wells gives on the original takes, because obviously they have the raw footage of people acting and then Wells kind of like chiming in saying like, you know, be a, you know, kind of be a little smaller with it or, you know, and all these sort of things. So he was able to, as near as possible, kind of get into the mindset of what Wells wanted. And obviously he also had the benchmark of the 45 minutes that he had edited together so he could look at what he had done and kind of get a sense for the rhythm of what the final film would look like. And it is that I would really recommend people watch that documentary in addition to like The Other Side of the Wind and They'll Love Me When I'm Dead because it really does give a sense of the level of effort and passion of everyone involved in getting this movie finished. Like, And from its purely technical point of view, anyone who wonders about how movies get made... I think it's really informative about the actual process and how difficult it is and why, in some respects, Wells was like 40 years ahead of his time because he wanted to make this movie that's largely improvised, that's shot on a dozen different formats and edited together with this incredibly frenetic style, which was pretty much impossible to do on when, you know, people edited physically. Like, it would have taken years and years and years and did take years and years and years to assemble whatever he wanted to because of the laborious process of cutting together all of these different things. And then they say, well, now with mm. Avid and digital editing, where you can have all of the elements digitized and available, like, it's so much easier to do those sort of things. And I think it really does point to the great thing about Wells, which is that his ideas often greatly exceeded you know his capability to realize them 
not in the sense that he was untalented, but just literally he wanted to do things that were impossible within the realm of what film production was capable of at the time that he was working. Yeah. It's interesting that a lot of the party stuff, with the exception of how it was cut together, reminded me of like a Robert Altman movie. Mm. With like, you know, you're moving from room to room and you're hearing snippets of conversation which aren't necessarily driving the plot or anything or you know, there's not really much of a plot or directly related to the characters and you just get this idea that you're at this party and moving through these people and they're kind of part of this tapestry of something you're experiencing rather than here's a scene with these characters where they say ABC, etc., etc., repeat until fade. You get this idea that there's... You know, it's it's a it's a an actual thing that's happening, and you just happen to be there. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that there's so many of those little grabs from the new Hollywood era. And I I was kind of quite surprised to to find out that he was relatively suspicious of what was going on the new new Hollywood era, but also very much recognised that they were making personal movies, and that was what he was interested in. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a he, he certainly had I think he had mixed feelings about it like he could see that something exciting was going on but at the same time he, there, there was probably some degree of bitterness on his part mm. that, he probably couldn't have been born at a worse time for a maverick filmmaker to be operating mm. within the, so for someone who hates a system to be yeah. operating within a system that is so constrained by such rigid structure to then find out that you could have been making films um, 25 years later in a in a period of time where, you know, studios were given money to anyone with a beard <laughs> and the studio system had collapsed to the point where they didn't know what was good. <laughs> and then just, you know, you had a seven-year period, which we've talked about quite a lot, where, mm. you know, it was anything goes and you get some amazing films. And, yeah, maybe there's that degree of, of bitterness about the fact that he's missed the boat. But, I mean, it, it feels like, it's weird to feel like, if, if that film would have just been made and finished and it mm-hmm. came out in, like, 1975 or whatever, we'd be talking about The Other Side of the Wind as a a kind of an outlier in the new Hollywood period. It was like, uh, you know, an old master's playing his one final hand and putting mm-hmm. a film together in the style of the day um, that perfectly encapsulates what that movement's about and also comments on the movement itself, which is, you know, generally what you want from a piece of art. Um, mm. and But we're not. We're talking about it, you know, 45 years after it's relevant. And, you know, we never got to know what it was like to be considered as part of that canon now. Yeah, and we're also talking about it. Like, I thought it was really funny that we're talking about this because if anyone's playing, like, shot reverse, shot bingo, like, there's certainly <laughs> two of the main markers of, of what we talk about, you know, is movies from the 70s and, like, Netflix and the changing <laughs> face of media. <laughs> and, like, this movie does really combine those two things beautifully. And it's it feels... It almost feels so right and, like, that that Wells would feel, you know, kind of very positively about this, but also kind of very ruefully of being, like, you know... Like literally, like you know, the, the the phrase "they'll love me when I'm dead" encapsulates so much about what his career was and what his his life ended up being, which is that he was a guy who was so poorly treated by Hollywood and a man who was so joyful in terms of his creative impulses. Like when he first went to Hollywood to make Citizen Kane, you know, he talks about it being the kind of the, like the greatest train set a boy could ever want. 
that's what he loved to do. And and you see that, you know, if you read anything about his work in the theatre, he just loved the the drive to create and to try new things and to do things that people hadn't done before. And just Hollywood wouldn't allow him to do that. And that was kind of the thing that in, you know, was kind of crushing. You know, he wasn't able to make the kind of movies that he wanted to make. And when he did make the kind of movies he wanted to make, it was over years and years and years and involved him having to go and make commercials for Paul Masson uh, and, you know, advertise, you know, you and I and Emily shared that poster for Peeps, the uh, American candy that he did, you know, like he would just go off and do anything to raise money to do the things that he wanted to do. And the work that he did was like incredible, but there was always, there, there's always that sense that his work, particularly considering how much of it was never finished, that there's this real kind of great tragedy that he made so many great things, but God, how many more movies could we have gotten out of him if Hollywood had let him, <laughs> if he, or if he had, like you say, if he'd been born 25 years later. And, mm. and I think also in terms of like the new Hollywood, I do think his, some of his skepticism maybe comes from the sense that, you know, he sees these people making personal movies, but maybe he's thinking like, well, all these people have all this, and they have all of this freedom now, but, you know, are they making the most use of it? They're still making movies in kind of traditional genres. Whereas mm. what he was trying to do with this was, like, really push the boundaries of what you could do in in cinema. Yeah, and, mm. like, in really making something that questions the very nature of reality and how stories are told. Mm. It's worth reminding viewers as well that this isn't the first um, of his films that is you know, only available like years after his death been mm. pieced together from the best information they have. Touch of Evil was famously done in the 90s. Yeah. And this is another one. I, I'm kind of a little bit like, you know, I, I'm not particularly well up on Orson Welles, but I, and I've never seen The Magnificent Ambersons. Does a version of that exist? Or is are the materials out there to make that? Or is it lost to the ages? It's at this point, I think it's fair to say it's lost to the ages. Like, right. Okay. There were rumors for a long time that like he had a work print that existed that included the lost 40 minutes, but, right. and that it had been lost in like a house fire or something. Okay. But like no one knows how much, like, there's so much about Wells that is just shrouded in myth and uncertainty that whether or not that even ever existed is a complete you know, kind of question in and of itself. And like the hope that people have, and this was like rekindled a couple of years ago when, you know, they found that print of uh, Metropolis in like a warehouse in Argentina or whatever. Where right. It was like, oh, here's the footage that no one's seen since 1927. Like mm. that's the, the, the hope is that somewhere in some warehouse in some unmarked box somewhere, you know, like the end of Raiders, there's like the complete work print of, of Magnificent Ambersons, but um, as far as anyone knows, like the footage was removed and chucked into the river and, ah. and like, it just doesn't exist. And also another one of his is the movie Confidential Report slash Mr. Arcadin, which is a movie that exists in three entirely separate forms. One that was released in the 50s that he wasn't happy with. One that was released, I think, in the the 60s or the 70s, which was closer to what he wanted to do. And then like a version that came out in the mid 2000s, which was like Such of Evil, I think, assembled from notes and, you know, kind of like the original script and things like that. So there's a long and storied history of Wells's movies just kind of being completely 
screwed with and existing in multiple formats. I think Chimes at Midnight has some of that as well. Like mm. that that one, I think, existed in a couple of forms, but um, was recently restored and put out by Criterion. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So here, so like the the other side of the wind, they talk about this in the documentary as well. Like it does feel like the bookend to Citizen Kane in the sense that Citizen Kane was a movie made by a young man full of promise about a character who starts off with like a great deal of promise and um, which kind of gets beaten out of him. He kind of weirdly anticipated his entire life <laughs> in his first movie, which um, has a kind of a, uh, an appropriately Shakespearean aspect to him. But it there is something so beautiful about a man who's work during his life was often frustrated and he was often unable to complete things for various reasons and then only after he died was he really truly appreciated for the artist that he was having this unfinished work kind of go out there and be finally be able to be uh appreciated uh i think you and i would both agree that people should watch the other side of the wind particularly if you like that era of filmmaking if you're a wells aficionado but but just because it's a really fascinating and amazing work and and watching that and the two documentaries together i think really does that there's a a really strong kind of conversation between the three of them in terms Mm. of how they relate to each other and giving you a sense of why this movie fascinated people for such a long time Mm. yeah it is good and uh knowing that there's a film out and then a documentary then a documentary about making the film there's probably somewhere on Netflix a documentary about making the documentary <laughs> about making the film about making another film and then we all just <laughs> fold into each other and we die. Yeah, and Wells is there laughing all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we end this week's episode, as we end all of our episodes, with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, I saw a really good film this week um, that turned out to be very closely related to uh, Other Side of the Wind, unbeknownst to me. I watched a documentary on Netflix, Kel Surprise, called Shirkers, uh, a documentary that had um, done pretty well at Sundance this year and also, I think, screened at Sheffield Dotfest. A hugely fascinating story about a Singaporean kind of director or she was at the time um an artist i best probably the best to call her um a girl called sandy tan i say girl because she was 16 um or 15 i think when she decided to make singapore's first kind of experimental road movie singapore's cinema um not that notable um especially during that time where there was kind of enforced state censorship and there'd, there'd been a few exploitation fix made paid with kind of american money with american stars but a little else and uh sandy tan who was someone who was big in the kind of like zine scene and the kind of punk scene and the underground art movements in singapore decided she wanted to make um a film a road movie that kind of uh, had like hollywood ideals but singapore style and she joined a filmmaking um class and fell under the tutelage of uh, an American um, kind of mentor who said, this sounds great, your your script is amazing, let's make this thing. And Shirkers is the name of the film that they're trying to make, also the name of the documentary. Hmm. Um, And the documentary is about what happened when they made the film and then what happened when someone, I won't say who, absconds with all of the footage for more than 20 years and what happens when it turns up again? 
Mm. And it's amazing because it's an absolute testament to just how talented people can be because the film is, the Sherka's the film within the film is kind of just so kind of bold and visually arresting and, and kind of striking. And it was made by like children, actual children made this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like an incredibly compelling mystery of what happened and what it means in your life. If you have something that you are so tied and invested in for a period of time, and she, you know, Sandy Tan and uh, her, her kind of producer and kind of um, uh, assistant directors and everything. You know, there were 16 year old kids who, who, who plunged five, six years of their lives into making the film and then to have it just rested away from them and not like, oh, we know where it is. We're going to try and get it back. They, they didn't know. They didn't know where it was. And they just assumed it was lost for like 20 odd years. And then to have it turn up and then see the journey they go on with it afterwards. After um, she had become a film critic and then gone to America and become a novelist. Yeah, it's just a, just an incredibly fascinating story. I've already said too much about what it's about and everything because it's really best going in knowing nothing. I'm trying not to spoil anything. But yes, yeah, on Netflix and it's a film it's pretty unique actually. Um, really doesn't feel like too many other films. But the idea that it's a film within a film that's been lost for ages ties quite nicely into The Other Side of the Wind and that's why it's my recommendation this week. Fantastic. That sounds really great. After you recommended it uh, to me earlier in the week, it shot right up my list of films I need to see this year. So yeah, that's definitely uh, Mm. one that I'll be checking out. I'm going to recommend a video essay by Dan Olson called Annihilation and Decoding Metaphor. Dan Olson is a YouTuber who has made a lot of movies over the years, kind of picking apart different aspects of filmmaking and film culture. Uh, He did a video about the adaptation of The Last Airbender, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, which I'm very fond of. I find it, I often find myself watching it because it's very smart in kind of pointing why exactly that movie is a failure as an adaptation, but also on technical levels like framing and shot composition. And it's also just really funny. But this one is, as the title would suggest, is about the movie Annihilation. And it very directly takes on a specific strain of film criticism that has flourished on YouTube of people being very overly literal about movies that maybe are not meant to be taken so literal. Most obviously exemplified by something like uh, Cinema Sins, which is like a a, a dreadful Mm. plague. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's just more common of people like thinking that something like Annihilation, which is like an incredibly dense and beautiful movie that operates largely in the realm of metaphor you know it's it's very kind of strongly like a metaphor about trauma and pain and depression and like trying to and how experiences change people over time and how some people are just being like well what we need really need to do with our time is to spend half an hour trying to explain the ending of this movie when Mm -hmm. It's very clearly not a movie that's being designed to be understood on a strictly narrative level. And Olsen is very funny and entertaining in how he kind of picks apart the problems with that approach to, to art and film in particular, but also I think provides a very accessible way of explaining how to address things that, that seem like so dense and hard to understand that you then result to kind of just considering them on a very literal level. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dan Olsen's work, and I think this is a really, really good and in some ways very important video in terms of trying to, at the very least, kind of offer a corrective to 
trends in filmmaking that have become like very prevalent and kind of very depressing in that they don't really engage with movies on the level in which the movies themselves are operating. Mm. There's there's a huge thing, isn't there? Like it's not criticism of all you're doing is pointing out plot holes. Mm. And it's that we've yeah. fallen into that trap where, you know, there's a point at which you can talk about, you know, the logic of films and, and the plot and, you know, how bad writing can be easily exposed. But when it's a film like Annihilation, uh, or it's any more than, you know, a action movie or a kind of a mainstream Hollywood movie, then that all just falls on its ass and mm. kind of renders the whole thing moot. And you look a bit silly, in, you know, if you pull back from it. Mm. And the point that he makes in the video is that when you are trying to basically offer an explanation for the ending of Annihilation, you very quickly move away from criticism to just fanfic. Mm. Yeah. Because the ending of that movie is not in any way clear and it's clearly making a very specific metaphorical and allegorical point you know you are just essentially taking an ambiguous and elegaic ending and instead going i'm gonna add my own story onto this (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so i think it's 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 very um certainly from my perspective as someone who who occasionally watches those sort of videos and just finds them really depressing in that they don't offer you anything in terms of furthering your understanding of a work yeah i think it's it's a vital service that dan olsen and and people like him like uh you know Lindsay ellis and people like that uh offer by not just being able to say hey the writing in this is bad or another great dan olsen video him kind of taking apart the editing of suicide squad mm-hmm. and pointing out why exactly that movie uh is a nightmare like they can not only just do that, but they can also take the broader view and say, "Hey, this a way that people approach movies is actually detrimental to them as an art." So, yeah, there'll be a link to that in the description. Wicked. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave us a review, subscribe, rate us, recommend us to your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, anywhere good podcasts are found, and also bad podcasts, but we're a good one. So, <laughs> and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>